I'm so excited this morning. Who was here last week uh, when Russ was when Russ was preaching? Couple of us. Cool. <clears throat> who who remembers? <laughs> okay. Who who remembers what Russ spoke about? Oh, there it is. That's all I remember too. One degree. Russ shared this amazing story about uh, the Titanic. And how if we had modern um, technology, they could have made a one degree adjustment one kilometer or one mile before the iceberg and the Titanic would have been saved. And he was tying it into this idea that you and I as children of God are called to walk in the light. And as a result of walking in the light, we are called to obey God's commands. Today, I get the honor of talking about the part two of this whole walking in the light journey. And I'm excited about this because I'm a fairly, I would say when people talk to me and look at me, they say, oh, you're a pretty cultural person. You're pretty aware of what's going on in culture, of what's going on in society and all these kind of things. And I love culture. I don't know about you, but for me, I love seeing the diversity of where we live. I love seeing the diversity of Facebook and everything it celebrates. I love being a part of the culture that I live in. But that's not true for everybody. Today, I get to talk about this idea that we as Christians are called to turn our back on the world's agendas. But it's interesting to me that we often blur the line between culture and world. You see, God has called you and I as Christians to turn our back on the agendas of the world. And in the next breath, he has called us to engage our culture head on. There's something going on in our culture today where there was a great divide between the secular and the sacred. And God is working today in his church to bring together the two, to marry the two. You see, when God made creation, he said, it is good. And ultimately, what made it evil was not the fact that creation was evil, but that man took what God made, which was good, and used it for evil. God is in the business of redeeming those that are that were secular, and he wants to make them sacred. I want to open with a quote from someone you, you all may know. Her name is uh, Madonna. And um, Madonna has this interesting um, sort of phrase that she has mentioned in a Vogue magazine uh, interview, and it says this. She says, My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it, and I discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have come, I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Madonna.
You say the name Madonna in public. There is no one that doesn't know that name. But interesting enough, Madonna has an issue with the fact that if she's not doing something great, she isn't someone great. You see, if we talk about the world's agendas in simple acts of sin, it kind of becomes nebulous. Is anyone like, if someone's like, oh, tell me about like, what are all the sins? Tell me all the sins. And it's kind of like, okay, let's begin the list. And then you get into the sins and like the things that you do, the actions. But then you think, okay, if we take it a step like Jesus did, then we have to talk about the heart. And then all of a sudden, even the things that are not sin, we can see the sin in them. Because we realize, actually, it doesn't matter what it is. The sin inside of things is more about what's in our hearts than what we're doing with our bodies. Check this out. Galatians 5. It says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Holy smokes, that's intense. If we talk about the acts, it's kind of like splitting hairs. But today, my excitement in this whole process is that I get to talk about turning our back on the world's agendas, embracing our culture and engaging our culture for the sake of the gospel. There's sort of three ways in which you and I have the opportunity to engage our culture. Three very simple ways. And they are in this order. One, we can either receive our culture. Two, we can either redeem our culture. Or three, we can reject our culture. Religious people tend to do this in the reverse order. By default, we reject our culture. But for an example, we live in Nanaimo. Okay. Nanaimo happens to be the home of the Nanaimo bar. Like not just the drinking bar, there's one downtown, but there's another bar, which is a treat. Okay. This is the one I'm, (laughs) thanks James. This is another one, the treat. Okay. So we decide as a community that we are going to, in fact, um, receive this part of our culture. We're going to celebrate the fact that Nanaimo is home to the Nanaimo bar. So we host this competition. We say, okay, bring your best Nanaimo bars, dip them in chocolate, wrap them in coconut, do your, whatever, whatever. And we celebrate the fact that we founded the Nanaimo bar. You see what I'm saying? This is a way that the church can actually receive culture. But what about redeeming culture? What does that look like? Let's think about the story of Luther. Who knows who Luther is? Luther from back in the day. Luther was known as a man who broke away from traditional um, Catholicism. Basically, Catholicism in that day had so um, distorted the word of God that they had said it wasn't for the average layman, but in fact, it's only for like priests and really godly people. And it's up to them to portray those things to man. But man got in the way. Religious people took something that God had designed for good and they distorted it and they used it for their own profit. Luther retaliated to this idea and through Luther, 
This idea was spoken that actually, no, the gospel is this, that the just shall live by faith. What Luther did, he didn't receive culture. He challenged religious culture. And what he did is he redeemed secular culture. You know that Luther took the songs that were written for the pubs, the drinking songs, and he just changed the words. What was he doing? He was redeeming culture. The last thing that we as Christians do, and I I promise you it is the last thing, is we reject culture. And we don't do it to be different. We do it because there's a bigger thing at play here. For example, if our, if our culture obsessed over this idea of, like, child suicide, we would not embrace that as a church. We, we, we don't believe in suicide, and we don't especially believe in child suicide. Agreed? So we as the church, we wouldn't try and redeem that. We wouldn't try and find a happy medium. We wouldn't receive it. We would, in fact, reject it. And God has called us to engage our culture head on by one of those three ways. Redeem, receive, or reject. The day we live in, we've sort of exalted our culture in a way where we process our faith, we process Jesus, we process Christianity through the context of our culture. So if it doesn't really sit right with our culture, we think, oh, we, we as Christians must be way off. But you know, we're called as Christians to process our culture through the life of Christ. Christianity is not, it's not a religious, uh, uh, spiritual truth. Who here is in business? Anyone? Just no one. Okay, cool. Great. So uh, I'll go ahead. I'm in business. Is there anyone here who is in uh, the banking sector? Okay, does anyone here have a job? (laughs) Thank God. Okay. (laughs) My goodness. So, if you have a job, and if you read this Bible, you will know that this Bible doesn't just help you with spiritual matters. This Bible helps you with very natural matters. Are Are they okay? He's not doing well. Okay. We're good. Okay, cool. <laughs> Young guns. Um, it's important for us as Christians to know that Christianity is not simply a religious truth. It's actually an absolute truth. It's a total truth. And when we get into this thing, it actually prepares us for life. Not just life in the church, but life in life. The first passage I want to go to here is in 1 John 2. As many of you know, we're working through the book of 1 John. So this is the second week of working through the book of 1 John. It says this in verse 15. I'm reading out of the Amplified. It says, Do not love the world of sin that opposes God and his precepts, nor the things that are in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust and sensual craving of the flesh, and the lust and longing of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, 
pretentious confidence in one's resources or in the ability of earthly things. These do not come from the Father, but are from the world. The world is passing away, and with it, its lusts, the shameful pursuit and ungodly longings. But the one who does the will of God and carries out his purposes lives forever. Can I tell you, as someone who is a very easygoing, I think I'm a nice guy. This is a really hard preach to prepare for because I kind of feel like a monster up here. Like, the sins and the lust and the sex, sex, sex. It's like, whew. <laughs> Sorry. It, I, I promise you, it's like I lost sleep over this, okay? So, <laughs> but I want to suggest something. We have this thing in uh, where we live where we have become more sophisticated than we used to be as human beings. We've had these like major advancements in technology. We've had like these huge uh, advancements in innovation, massive discoveries in science. But you know what? We often think that because we've made such crazy um, leaps and bounds in developing those different areas of society, it's changed the fundamentalism of what we are as humans. We think that because everything has evolved around us, therefore we as human beings in our simple carnal nature have evolved. We don't sin the way we used to. We don't have the same tendencies towards the things that we used to. But what I want to say is this. If you have a Bible, we're going to put this to the test. I want you to turn to Genesis 3 for me. For those of you that are um, new to Christianity or not a Christian, Genesis marks the beginning of the book. This is, the, this is in the first two pages of the book. Because we want to see if what the writer said in his passage, that the world is subject to three areas of sin. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Check this out. Chapter 3, Genesis And we'll start in verse 2. Basically, God has created this amazing garden, and he's given man and woman access. They're innocent. They don't know what's going on. He's also given them free will. And he's created this beautiful garden for them to just go explore, enjoy, and live. There's one tree in the garden. We know the story. And it's the one tree that God says, don't partake of that tree. Eve finds herself in the presence of the serpent, conveniently very close to this tree. And if you read it, you actually realize Adam is in fact with her. But anyway, we see here in verse 2, it says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, says the serpent. For God knows that you eat of it, and your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. John says, do not love what is in the world for all that is in the world, the lust and sensual craving of the flesh and the lust and longing of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. These do not come from the Father. Do you see? Eve gave in to the same three things that you and I give in to daily. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You see, Eve reasoned her way into that fruit by saying, look, the lust of the eyes, it's good for food. Sorry, pleasing to the eye. Lust of the flesh, it's good for food. Pride of life makes me like God. You see, the very first sin that took place in Genesis is, in fact, that cell phone ring. Is that a cell phone ring? Someone's playing like Settlers of Catan on their phone. Very first sin that took place in the earth was the sin of Eve and Adam, which lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Seen to me. Here's how our here's how our culture evolves. Like if this was a TED talk, for example, I would pull my phone out. I'd probably do a couple of these, and I go, "Okay, guys, ready? I'm going to post this on my." And I take a selfie. Who remembers when selfies first started happening? Anyone remember? Ellen DeGeneres, yeah. So Ellen DeGeneres had one. Before that, I mean, I was in college at the time. This was back in, back in 07. And I was in college, and I remember Facebook started to be a thing. So I remember seeing Facebook, and when Facebook first started coming out, it was kind of like, it felt like a hookup site. It, did anyone get it in the early days? It was a little weird. But, but and like my, I had these buddies in college, like, oh, they're just like checking people out, all this stuff, profiles, pictures, all this stuff. But then like, The whole point was that if you wanted to take a selfie, you did everything in your power to make it seem like you did not take that selfie. And guess what? If it looked like you took that selfie, you got destroyed. Verbally, people would thrash you. They'd comment on it like, oh, you totally took that yourself, you obnoxious, self-conceited. And so the involvement started to happen. But then you know what started to happen? People started to get bold. They started to take them with the, with the precursor, hashtag no shame. Hashtag shameless selfie. Do you remember these days? But you know what was happening? <laughs> what was happening is culture was starting to embrace this idea of identity. And not just identity, but Blatantly requesting affirmation from your peers. It's got to the point now, I mean, I looked it up yesterday out of curiosity. You would not believe what you find under selfie. Like, there's duck lips. Help me. There's duck lips. No, I see. There's a whole crew there you all know about. You're all doing it right now. Duck lips. There's the fish. What is it? You know what I'm talking about? The fish kiss or something? It's like you show part, parts of your teeth. There's like specific selfie poses. They are absolute, the Kard- kissy lips, whatever. There's specific Kardashian poses that people are employing into their lives by choice on a daily basis. There's something like 300 million selfies uploaded every single day. 300 million. 
people. Maybe it's half that and people are just doing two. That's a separate issue. (laughs) 300 million selfies every day. And guess what? Everyone wants the same thing. They want affirmation. And we have never been more empowered to ask for it outright than now. People not feeling beautiful, people feeling insecure, people getting older, things happening. Let me post a selfie. There was a a dedicated song. But first, let me take a selfie. (laughs) But now the movement has evolved. You want to scroll through your Facebook, and this is what you see. You see two extremes. One extreme is people saying, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe how amazing this person is. We hid a camera in this bush, and then we gave her an opportunity to be nice, and then she was nice, and it was amazing. Like, okay, cool. And then they change it, and then they go, okay, this guy just saw something. This guy just installed like an electrocution thing on his phone. He leaves it on the counter in the store. He walks away from the till with the till open and money on the table just to tempt this guy who's there to steal his phone. So the guy grabs his phone, puts it in his pocket, and it starts electrocuting his pocket. And he's pre-done this whole thing. Or, who knows about the woman in Langley who shut her kids in her car? right? We don't know if it was for a minute or for 20 minutes. But what we do know is some self-righteous guy in the parking lot decided to pull that phone out and tell the world exactly who she is and what she looks like. And we all jump on board. There's kids in the car. Shut up. You see, Self-righteousness in the world has a way of trying. This is how we kind of make ourselves feel like good people. We expose the immorality of others. That's what our culture does. We have extremes. We we put up these colorful uh, rectangle things on our Facebook that say, you're beautiful and you'll do great today. You all know the ones. Choose your color, write your font. Right? (laughs) You're going to, you're, Amazing. Don't live by other people's standards. You are the best. You can only do you. We show our best, we hide our worst, and the better we get at it, the more we think we're growing. There's hidden cameras everywhere. Everybody has an agenda. It's the involvement of the selfie. There seems to be two extremes in our culture. The one side we find is sort of this like moral conformity thing we've talked about in the prodigal son story where where people like subject their will and their heart and all their desires for the sake of something that's like a universal moral conformity. Like I know what's right to do that. I'll do it. I'll put my feelings aside this. Well, there's such a retaliation on the other side now towards this idea of self-discovery that everyone lives in our generation now by their hearts. I live by the feelings and intentions of my heart. If it doesn't feel true to my heart, I'm not going to do it because it's not who I am. And man, that sounds noble, right? Sounds really noble. You know what else culture claims? No one knows me like I know me. 
There's this amazing verse in Romans 8 that literally says the polar opposite. It says this, He knows us, talking about God, He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read this whole passage, but Ephesians 4 is this passage talking about unity in the body of Christ. What's Okay. Fast. So easily, huh? Okay. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of you, each of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And I'm going to pause there. What's interesting to me is culture says, prove your morality by exposing the immorality of others. Paul says, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bear with one another in love. How does culture pursue unity? You ever thought about this? How does culture find common ground? If you're involved in culture, then you know that this idea of individualism is running rampant. No one can tell anyone anything about anyone or anything. I am my, what is that guy, Henry something? I am my own master. I'm the fate of my destiny. I'm this, this, this. In a world that believes that, no one has common ground. Do you know what you have to do to find unity? You have to find the lowest common denominator. And you know what it winds up at? We're all humans. We're all humans. Yeah, of course we're all humans, But you see, culture in our world says this. In order to find unity, the lowest common denominator is we just have to embrace each other at a human level. Don't tell me what to do. Love me for who I say I am. But Christ followers find unity on the journey of Christ, which is the highest possible pursuit. You see, we don't embrace each other based on the fact that we're humans. It's like saying, I embrace you because I want you to embrace me. I won't judge you just because you won't judge me. I won't call you out on something I disagree because I really don't want you to say anything to me that would step on my toes. Unity in the, in the church says, don't you know that you are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit? Stop doing the things that are less than what God has called you to. Don't you know the greatness that he's put inside of you? You do not need to live a life of sin. You can be set free by the power of the Spirit. One John three one says this: "What marvelous love the Father has extended to us! Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. I don't know who I am. Who you really are is a child of God." 
But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously. Because it has no idea who he is or what he's up to. But friends, that's exactly who we are, children of God. And that is only the beginning. Who knows where we'll end up? What we know is that when Christ is openly revealed, we'll see him. And in seeing him, become like him. All of us who look forward to his coming stay ready with the glistening purity of Jesus' life as a model for our own. Think about this offensive passage, story of Jesus. And Jesus is, has just fed a whole bunch of people a supernatural loaf of bread. He's been breaking it, and it keeps duplicating in the moment. He's feeding them. And he's like, satisfy these people, and he starts to teach them about the bread of life. And there's Jews there, there's religious people, all this stuff. Culturally, it was perfect. Jesus responded to the need. He also left with some encouraging words, and it would have been great to stop right there. But he takes it a step further. Jesus begins to talk about what it is to be the bread of life. He begins to talk about what it is to eat his flesh and drink his blood. This is like, you realize, like, cultural people are sitting there like, shut up. You had them. You had them at that duplicating loaf. Had them at those encouraging words of the bread of life. But now you're saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's what I would have done. Like, Jesus, you're, you're, you're literally pushing them away. What's the point? Jesus is making a point. See, culture is all about the outside. It's all about altering the outside to determine what's going on on the inside. Kingdom is different. Jesus was showing us something, that this message of God coming to man through Jesus Christ is not a naturally understood message. It's a message that is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. It's that message that when we hear it, it doesn't change us because it makes sense. It changes us because it's supernatural. When the world wants to make changes, we build with bricks. We, oh, man, you know what? I've, I've really sucked this week. Like, I... I canceled on so many appointments. I was just not really feeling it and all this stuff. I'm going to do better next week. Bricks. Yeah, you want to meet up for coffee? Okay, let's do it. You want to meet up? Okay, great, great, great. Boom, boom, boom. Look what I've done. Look, I'm back on track. I'm back. I'm back. Gospel growth is not like that. It happens on the inside first, and then it works its way out slowly. You see, before we ever experience the fruit of a tree, that tree has been working hard to grow roots deep in the ground. You know, they say a tree, most average trees, the, the roots actually extend as far as the branches of the tree do. But you would never know that because you can't see it. Gospel growth is like that. When it takes root, it's not necessarily blatantly obvious and evident, all this stuff. It's a slow process of time of God changing us. First John 5.19 We know for a fact that we are of God. And the whole world around us lies in the power of the evil one. 
opposing God and his precepts. And we have seen and know by personal experience that the Son of God has actually come to this world and has given us understanding and insight so that we may progressively and personally know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children. This is, I want you to keep in mind as I'm reading this, this is the very last thing John says in his first letter. Little children, believers and dear ones, guard yourselves from idols, false teachings, moral compromises, and anything that would take the place of God in your heart. If there's anything I notice about the world I live in, the videos I see posted on social media, the endeavors of my friends who don't believe in Jesus, it's this. Our generation is a generation that is seeking justification through justice. Have you ever known a a generation that is so passionate about justice? But the same way the guy who gets the phone in the woman's face for leaving her children in the car is seeking to identify his morality by exposing her immorality is the same way that we embrace justice to try and find our own justification. But as Christians, we are products of injustice. Do you know why we are products of injustice? Because when you deserve to be caught on a cell phone for doing something you should not have been doing, Jesus paid the price for that. He took something on himself that he did not deserve. We seek for justice based on what we think we deserve. Jesus took on his own injustice to pay for the justice that we deserved. I am a product of injustice every single day. And if I use justice to try and get justified, it's because the gospel hasn't grown fruit in my life. I saw this interesting picture. Tom Hanks was wearing this shirt. It was a rainbow shirt. And it said, it said a whole bunch of stuff it's around the pride movement. And the first thing it said was, love is love. Follow me on this. Love is love. Women deserve equality. Uh, no child is an orphan. Uh, this kind of stuff. Like all, all really noble things. Culture isn't always polarizing. Sometimes it's just one degree off, like Russ talked about. Let's, let's start with the opener, and then we're probably going to just wrap up pretty quick. Love is love. You know what love is love means? That's like saying pink is pink or hate is hate. It sounds good, but it's just, you're you're just, it's like a double entendre. (laughs) You're not really saying anything. And that's the point. Saying love is love is like saying it is what it is. 
Now, if this offends you, I apologize and follow me for a second. Before the offense sinks in, just follow me. If love is love and it is what it is, what is that actually saying apart from nothing? Love is love. You see, for the world, love is love is saying this. Love me, but don't get too close. Love me, don't change me. Think about the ridiculous, like, acceleration. I say ridiculous because it's astronomical. The acceleration, even with the whole pride movement. I'm, I'm going there a little bit. Because our culture, we, we, we just listen to it. It's like, love is love and everyone deserves right and this. And they're all good. Yeah, 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 of course. You know, I heard a story about someone like, someone's like, what, what's, your, what's your take on the uh, pride movement? And he turns to the publicist, like, what should I say? It's like, what do you mean? What does, what does that mean? Like, wh- what do you think? But we're not, we're not allowed to say that. Love is love. You know, the Bible teaches us something very different. It says this, God is love. You see, if we say love is love, you ask people, okay, what is love? You're going to get a mixture of the unconditional love of God mixed with some distorted sexual love ideas. That's what you're going to get. And it's good. you're going to find that if you ask 100 people, you're going to get 100 answers. Why? Because love is love. Don't define it. Just roll with it. 2 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul writes this interesting thing. He says, he's talking about people. And he says, people who measure themselves against themselves are unwise. If you measure love against love, it's unwise. Because it has no parameters and it has no guidelines. Christians are called to speak the truth in love. Religious Christians only speak the truth. Illiterate Christians only love. Think about this. You know you're called to love, but your culture has told you that you're not capable of speaking the truth in love. You have to pick truth or love. Our culture lives in one of the two. Oh, you're going to be here, nice big pink square. You're going to have a great day. You're going to be beautiful. Love. Look at this woman. She sucks. She's got her kids in the car. Windows up. Truth. He's not lying. But no, the Christian is called to a restoring their brother if they're caught in sin in gentleness. I don't want to go there. Okay. Our generation has been told that following the nuances of their hearts will lead to happiness. One John tells us something bigger. It says that God is greater than our hearts. Paul takes it a step further in 1 Corinthians 4. And he says, and I quote, one sec. He says this in verse 3, or verse 2, he says, uh, verse 3, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human 
court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Paul embraced this idea that he was not going to judge or pass judgment on anyone. He didn't care about what people thought about him. So contrary to the culture we live in, everyone cares about what everyone thinks. We post the selfie because we need affirmation. Whether you, however you package it. Girls, if you're wearing a bikini and you're doing this, and you, say, and you title it uh, Inspiring Mommy Diaries, or you title it uh, Just Trying to Inspire All the Mothers Out There, it sounds great, but it's just not true. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Right? But culture, just we just do it. We just roll with it. And then it's just like we stop talking about it because it's like, no, everyone's doing it. So therefore, it's cool. Oh, it's cool. Paul didn't care about the opinions of man. He didn't even care about his own opinion. I'm going to close here. (laughs) We're really wrapped up in our society with people's opinions about us. We really are. Our culture hinges on it. Our culture hinges on this idea that no one knows us better than we know ourselves. Our culture hinges on this idea that our hearts are the single greatest testimony of who we are as human beings. The Bible literally refutes all of those things. The Bible tells us that God is greater than our hearts. That we don't live self-obsessed and self-indulged, but in fact we live for the greater good of the one who has saved us, Jesus Christ. And here is what I want to pose. If you're not a Christian and you're sitting here, I am beyond excited that you're here, seriously. Because our culture doesn't engage at this level ever. We just say things, and if they sound right, you're smiling, huh, what's the right answer? Let's engage at this level. Because it's easy for each of us to think that our hearts know the best about who we are as human beings. Our culture is built on it. But I have to reflect on a story that takes place in the Bible, an insanely um, polarizing experience by a man named Saul. Saul dedicated his entire life to killing Christians. This was the mandate of his life. Paul was not a uh, crazy sinner or anything like that. He was actually a very religious man. In his religiosity, he thought God had called him to destroy the entire beginning of the Christian faith. But something happened while Paul was on a journey somewhere. Jesus met him. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, knocks him down, humiliates him, steals his eyesight. It's like he dealt with all of it. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. 
lays them on his face, takes his eyes away. And what he does is he actually changes the appetite of Paul. Paul, his heart was so set and zealous on destroying Christianity, and yet he became the single greatest ambassador for the very thing he was trying to destroy. God is more than able to change the heart of man or woman who are trying to find their identity in anything but him. I'm going to end with a story by one of my faves, Mr. C.S. Lewis. This is a section taken from the story of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's uh, from the Chronicles of Narnia series. But the scene starts with Eustace, a rotten boy, who has found himself in possession of a large fortune. He imagines the life and comforts he could now enjoy, and in his comforts he falls asleep with his treasure. When he awakes, Eustace is no longer a boy, but a dragon. The outward manifestation The outward manifestation of his inner greed and selfishness. The gold bracelet he had put on his boy arm was now constricting his dragon leg. And the pain was piercing. Even worse, the physical pain mingled with the pain of realizing he was now cut off from humanity, isolated and alone. He begins to weep large, hot dragon tears. In mercy and compassion, Aslan arrives and leads the dragoned Eustace to a garden on top of the mountain and then to a well at the center of the garden. Eustace looks at the well and knows if he could just get into the water, the pain in his leg would be soothed. But Aslan says he will have to be undressed first. After a moment of confusion, Eustace remembers that he is a dragon and that dragons have skins like snakes, which could be shed. With his new claws, Eustace begins to tear away at the dragon's skin. He peels off one layer, only to discover another nasty, scaly, and rough layer underneath. And then another. After three layers, he realizes it's vain. He will never make himself clean or get rid of his pain or shed the nasty skin. You will have to let me undress you, Aslan says. So desperate was Eustace, even his fear of Aslan's claws was not enough to stop him from laying down flat on his back. Laying anxious on the ground, here's what Eustace felt. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than, any, than, than the others had been. And there was I as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. 
Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much. I was tender underneath now and I had no skin on and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. The lady writes, I've cried many tears of sober gratitude at the grace in this scene. It hits close. It stings and heals. The way to deal with guilt is not to avoid it, but to resolve it. Eustace not only realized he couldn't get his own skin off, but that only God can come and take your skin off. And to do this, you have to let him pierce deep. You must take all the guilt on yourself and stop blame shifting and take responsibility for what you've done wrong. No excuses, full in the face. I look my sin in the face. I too was a dragon, an ugly, nasty, snakeskin creature, deep in self-made misery, lonely and fearful. But because of the grace of God, the Lion of Judah beckoned me to the garden built on the mountain, and to the well of living water. He made me a new creature and gave a hopeless sinner a future. When Christ tore my flesh, a flesh I could not put off, he turned my stone heart to flesh. By the blood of a lamb, I went from a dragon to a girl. Like Eustace, I have my relapses. There are still many days when I can be tiresome, but the cure has begun, and it's a cure that will be finished in good time. And when it's done, I will walk in a new garden to live with God and to drink from the river of pleasure forevermore.